As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. For every 10 deals that you submit an offer on, expect that you will only close on one. So that means that of those 10 deals that you submit offers on, one of those will have the offer accepted and will pass that due diligence intensive analysis phase and be closed on. Best ever listeners, where are you going to be on February 22nd and 23rd? I am visualizing that you're going to be in Denver, Colorado, because that's where the best ever conference is. And that's when it is February 22nd, 23rd, go to besteverconference.com and even put in take five. So you get 5% off your ticket. So that is T-A-K-E and the number five whenever you purchase your ticket. And buy now because ticket prices go up weekly. So go to besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference, the agenda, the speakers. We've got an incredible speaker list focused on commercial real estate. So that includes five plus units if you're in multifamily. And you're going to get a lot of value from this conference. Go to besteverconference.com. It's the third time we've done it. It improves every year and we have raving reviews. I'm not just saying it. Ask people who have attended every year. Besteverconference.com. Enter Take5, T-A-K-E-5 when you purchase your ticket and get an extra 5% off. Ticket price is going up weekly, so get it today. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing Enjoy this episode, and for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com, or to learn more about the Apartment Syndication School, go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hi, best of your listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Syndication School series, a free resource focused on the how-tos of apartment syndication. As always, I'm your host, Theo Hicks. So each week we air a podcast series about a specific aspect of the apartment indication investment strategy. And for the majority of these series, we will be offering a document or spreadsheet or some sort of resource for you to download for free. 
all of these free documents, as well as the free Syndication School series of the past and the future, can be found at syndicationschool.com. You are currently listening to part two of a two-part series entitled How to Qualify an Apartment Deal. In yesterday's episode, which was part one, or if you're listening to this in the future, the episode that was aired directly before this one, we introduced the three-step financial analysis process, which is one, screening deals against your investment criteria, two, underwriting a deal, and three, performing due diligence on a deal. And in part one, we went through step one, which was the investment criteria. So if you haven't done so already, listen to yesterday's episode, which will take you through a four-step process to set your investment criteria. And the reason why is because setting your investment criteria is going to save you from wasting time underwriting deals that you know don't make sense for you based off of your investment strategy. So definitely listen to that episode first, because in this episode, we're going to talk about steps two and three of the financial analysis process, which are going to be the underwriting and due diligence. Now, in yesterday's episode, I mentioned that these are not going to be the exhaustive episodes on underwriting and due diligence. We're kind of going in order here, and at this point, all you need is that investment criteria in order to start looking at deals. But it's going to be important to also understand what you're going to be doing once you actually find those deals. And so I want to introduce underwriting, introduce due diligence, and then in the future, once we get to those steps in the process, we'll dedicate an entire series to underwriting and dedicate an entire other series to the due diligence process. So, underwriting, step two. Deals that meet your investment criteria are going to move on to what's called the underwriting phase. So this is going to be the actual running the numbers phase. So when you're underwriting a deal, what you want to do is you want to obtain the financial information from the seller. So this is going to be the T12, which is essentially a profit and loss statement for the previous 12 months of the property. So it's got all the income and all the expense line items broken down into months. And you're going to use that as well as a rent roll, which is a list of all of the units at the property and people living there, and how much rent they're paying, or how many units are vacant, things like that. So you're going to use those two things, and you're going to input them into a financial model. So you're going to need some sort of cash flow calculator, and I believe we're going to offer a cash flow calculator for free once we get to that phase. It's not going to be our super detailed, customized cash flow calculator that we use for clients, but it's going to be a simplified version that still gets the job done, and will allow you to at least have something to start with, and then ideally customize it yourself from there. But anyways, you're going to input your T12 and rent roll data into your cash flow calculator to have an understanding of how the property is currently operating. And then, based off of your expertise, conversation with your property management company, understanding of the market, you are going to input information on how you plan on operating the property. So what are the rents going to be after you buy the property? What are the expenses going to be after you buy the property? What's going to be the debt service? What are going to be my growth assumptions? Things like that. In doing so, you're going to essentially create a yearly or ideally a monthly breakdown or a monthly projection for the entire hold period. So if you're holding onto the property for 10 years, then you're going to have 120 different columns for each of those months during that time. Obviously, it's going to start off day one, how the property is currently being operated, then you're going to totally transition it 
over one to two years to how you're going to operate the property and then you're going to be smooth sailing from there, slowly increasing rents until you sell the property after 10 years. But the most important aspect of the underwriting is going to be that one to two year period where you are repositioning the property, assuming you're a value-add investor. Moving forward, we're acting as if you're value-add because that's what we do and that's what we always recommend people do. What's going to be most important during that underwriting is going to be that transition from how it's currently operating to what it's going to be like once you stabilize the property at its new rents and at its new expense. That plus or minus 5% there is going to sway the property values, which is going to sway the exit sales price, which is going to mess up the return projections to your investors. So that two-year period of projections is very important. And again, we'll go over in detail how to make sure you're doing that properly. So once you've inputted all that data, then you are going to, through an iterative process, set an offer price that results in returns that meet your and your investor return goals. And then that's the offer you're going to submit to the owner. So that's the underwriting process starts with, does this property meet my investment criteria? Yes. To inputting information to your cash flow calculator, to it spitting out, this is how much money you could pay for the property, to you submitting an offer. Now at this point in the process, this is very important, the important outputs of the cash flow calculator, which if you remember all the way back in maybe one of the first syndication school series, we said that the main focus is going to be that internal rate of return and cash and cash return. These are going to be projections, and they're not going to be exact values because obviously you can't predict the future, so you don't know exactly how the property is going to operate once you take over. The goal is to get as accurate assumptions as possible at this point so that you can submit a fair offer. And then once you do your due diligence, which is step three, you are going to make these assumptions even more accurate, but they're never going to be perfect. So the goal is to get them as perfect as possible while also knowing that they're not going to be exact exact values, especially at underwriting. And then they will be more exact after due diligence, but still, again, not perfect. So before moving on to the due diligence and finishing up the episode, this is going to be a short one. I wanted to go over some tips for underwriting value at apartment communities. So we're kind of going out of order here a little bit, and I'm jumping ahead to underwriting, but I'm going to assume that you guys have some understanding of underwriting properties even if it's just underwriting fix and flips. So you're going to understand some of this terminology. If you don't understand the terminology, I recommend going to our blog and looking up the glossary of apartment syndication terms because the definition of all these terms are going to be found there. Because I don't want to stop every two seconds and define the terms that I'm using. That said, here are some of the top tips for underwriting value at apartment deals. It's going to be 10. Some of these I might have already hit on already, but I'm going to do them in order anyways. So number one is a tip on how to calculate the offer price. So you do not want to base your offer price on how the property is currently operating. This is something that people typically do on smaller two to four unit buildings where they'll be like, okay, here are what the rent could be. And here are what I think the expenses are going to be based off of that NOI of whatever. My debt service is going to be this. So it's cash flowing $10,000 a year. Based off of my down payment of $100,000, 10% cash flow. Great, I want that. So you don't want to do that because you have to take into account how the property going from how it's currently operating to it being how it's going to operate once you take over. And it's not going to be instantaneous, which means that you also can't base your offer price on how the property will operate once it's stabilized. You can't say, okay, these are what the rents are going to be. These are what the expenses are going to be. Here's my offer price. 
And I guess I might have mixed up the first one. When I said don't base your offer price on how the property is currently operating. So what you don't want to do is be like, okay, the rents are this right now and the expenses are this right now. This is how much I want to buy the property for. So you don't want to do either of those. What you actually want to do is you want to base your offer price on the projections for the entire business plan. So you're going to want to say, okay, year one is going to cash flow this much. Year two is going to cash flow this much after I've done my renovations. Year three is going to cash flow this much. Year four is going to cash flow this much. Year five, year six, year seven, blah, blah, blah. And then year eight, I'm going to sell this property. And I expect to sell it at this much based off of what the rents are going to be. So I'm going to make this much extra cash flow at sale. That way I've gotten this total annualized cash flow of 25%, which is what I want. So I'm going to set my offer price based off of this deal over eight years, cash flowing an annualized 25%. So that's the best way to set an offer price. I guess you can technically follow those other two strategies, but your return projections are going to be way off if you base it off of how the property is currently operating or if you base it off how the property will operate once it's stabilized. Because that is not going to be the state of the property for all eight years. It's going to be different. Number two is going to be don't trust the offering memorandum. So again, the offering memorandum is going to be a sales package, keyword being sales package, put together by a broker for an apartment deal that is mass marketed. So most likely you're going to be emailed a new deal and they'll say, click here for the offering memorandum and you're going to go through the offering memorandum. There's going to be all these fancy charts and graphs and pictures and all of these statements about how great this deal is, as well as a breakdown of how they are predicting the property to operate for the next five years. You don't want to base your offer price off of that pro forma. Again, you want to base it off of the T12, the rent roll, and your stabilized assumptions. So how you are going to operate the property after you've taken over based off of how it's being currently operated and projecting that out for however long you plan on holding on to the property. Tip number three is about how to determine the rent premiums. So the rent premiums are, and I guess I am going through and defining these terms. <laughs> so the rent premium is going to be the amount of extra rent you can demand after taking over the property. So for example, let's say that I am buying an apartment of all one bedroom units that are rented for 700 bucks. My plan is to go in there and spend five grand per unit in renovations. And let's take a step back. Let's just say I read the offer memorandum and it says that you're going to need to spend $5,000 in renovations and you'll be able to raise a rent by 200 bucks. Great. So I just input that in my cash flow calculator, right? 200 bucks, $5,000 per unit. Boom, I'm done. Well, no, you need to, number one, confirm that $5,000 number. So that means going to the property, looking at the interiors and saying, okay, this is exactly what I need to do. Okay, based off of that, how much is it going to cost? And then you also need to perform a rental comparable analysis to look at comparable properties in the markets with units that are comparable to what your unit is going to look like after it's renovated and determine how much rent per square foot they are getting. And then use that rent per square foot multiplied by the square footage at your building to get a new rent. And the difference between that new rent and that old rent is going to be that rental premium. Now, besides rental comps, the only other way to determine a rental premium is if the current owner already has proven rental premiums. So, going back to our one-bedroom example, let's say I've got a 100-unit building with all one-bedroom units that 50% are non-renovated, and they're renting for 700 bucks, and then 50 units are renovated, and they've been renovated within the past 12 months, and they are renting for 850 
then you want to confirm through a rental comp analysis, but you can be pretty confident that your rental premium on those remaining 50% of the units is going to be 150 bucks because they've proven that for 50 units. Now, since we're talking about rent comps, tip number four is going to be about rent comps, which is how do you actually perform the rent comps or what is a good rent comp? So the factors that you want to look at when you are analyzing comps are number one, what was the construction date of the property? So that needs to be comparable. What is the distance away from the property? This is also very important because a property could be a mile away, but in a completely different type of neighborhood, especially if you're in a big city. Also the number of units, because a 50 unit apartment building is not going to offer the same amenities as a 200 unit apartment community. So you're not going to be able to use a 200 unit apartment community as a comp for a 50 unit, as an example. Also the unit type and size. Depending, for example, if you're looking at a comp that has massive walk-in closets, it's got a dining room, it's got a living room, it's got a den and an office, and then two bedrooms and one bathroom, that's not going to be a good comp if you have just a two-bed, one-bath with a super small kitchen and just a living room and those two bedrooms and that's it. Also, this is kind of obvious, but the unit upgrades, so an apartment with granite countertops and stainless steel And the kitchen is not going to be a good comp if you plan on only putting in white appliances and laminate countertops. And also the amenities offered at the property. So what you're going to do is create an amenities checklist for all of the amenities at the subject property, plus whatever you plan on adding in. And then when you're looking at comps, add that comp to your checklist and check off how many amenities match and which extra ones do they have. And if they have a pool and a barbecue area and a dog park and a business center, and a clubhouse, and then your property has none of those, is not going to be a good comp. Now, this is when you're either looking at off-market deals, you got to find your own comps, or if the broker has really bad comps, you got to find your own comps. So in order to determine if the broker's got bad comps, here are three things to look at, and these are all based off of kind of what I already said. Number one, the distance to the property. Number two is the other property was renovated and the renovation timeline. So that timeline should be similar to the timeline you plan on implementing yours. So if you are looking at a comp or even your subject property, and they are saying that they've got a proven rental premium of 150 bucks, but they've only renovated one unit, or they renovated 20 units over a five-year period, that's not a good comp. And then lastly, you also want to take a look at the property operation. So for example, who pays utilities? If at the subject property, the subject property is the property that you are going to buy, If the owner only pays for water, but then you've got a comp where the owner pays for everything, that's not going to be a good comp. Or at least you have to adjust for that extra money that your tenants are going to be paying that's not necessarily going towards their rent. So that's tip number four about the rental comps. Tip number five is that you want to confirm all of your underwriting assumptions with your property management company. They're the ones that are operating the property. They're the ones that are going to need to stick to that budget. So they need to approve that budget before you close on the property. So when you're underwriting a deal and you input all of your assumptions, make sure you run that by your property management company before you submit an offer. They might see something that you didn't see. They might know something you didn't know, and they might have you tweak something that might save you from buying a bad deal. Tip number six is going to be about the revenue or the income line items. So in regards to rents, when you're analyzing a deal, make sure you are inputting market rent information and not the actual rents. So when you look at a rent roll, there's going to be the rent that 
is actually being paid. So it might just say rent, it might say current rent, it might say collected rent. And then there's going to be another column that's going to say what the market rent is. And the market rent is what that unit should be rented for. Sometimes the current rent and the market rent might be the same, but more than likely the actual rent is going to be lower than the market rent. And the reason why that's important is because that is going to be a potential value at opportunity. So if the market rents are 800 bucks, but the owner is only renting the units out for 700 bucks, then you've got a $100 in there that you can get just by turning over the units at their current condition. Add in there your $150 rental premium and you're raising rents by 250 bucks rather than just 150. So it's important to know what the difference between the market rents and the actual rents are, which is actually called loss to lease. So on a T12, you might see LTL or loss to lease, and that's what they're referring to. That is the difference between the market rents, aka the amount of rent they could demand for that unit, versus the amount of rent they're actually demanding. And that difference is loss to lease, and ideally that's going to be around 2 to 3%, because if you think about it, if I rent out a unit today at 500 bucks and rents go up by 3% each year, then at the end of their lease after 12 months, then that unit is now worth 500 bucks plus 3%. But since I can't raise rent during that 12 months, there'll be that 3% loss to lease. But if it's anything higher than that, then something else is going on. You also want to know the difference between the economic and physical occupancy. So physical occupancy is the rate of occupied units. So if there are 100 units in a building and 80 are occupied, then the physical occupancy is 80%. But let's say that of those 80 units, maybe 10 of those people aren't paying rent at all. So only 70 units are actually paying rent. So the economic occupancy is 70%. So physical is 80, economic 70. 70 is actually based off of how much money you are collecting, whereas that 80 is not necessarily a reflection on the amount of income you're producing because 10 of those units aren't actually paying any rent. So that's a pretty important distinction when you are looking at deals and when you're inputting vacancy, you want to input the economic vacancy or the vacancies lost. So how much money is being lost on those vacant units as opposed to just how many units are vacant in general. And then lastly, for the vacancy rate, you want to make sure that since we're doing value add, the vacancy rate is going to be higher during renovations than post renovations because every time you're renovating a unit, it's vacant. Once all the units are renovated, then you're going to have much less vacant units unless something else is going on in the market. So that's tip number six about the revenue line items. Tip number seven is going to be about taxes. So obviously one of the biggest expenses for real estate ongoing and at sale are the taxes. And you want to make sure that you are basing your tax assumption on the purchase price, not based off of what they are currently paying. Because what you'll see on many of the many properties is that they will have their T12 and the taxes will be, let's say, $500,000 for the year. But that's based off of a tax appraisal from five years ago where the property was worth 70% of what it is now. So you need to go to the appraisal or auditor site, find out the tax rate, and multiply that out by your purchase price to get the new tax expense. And sometimes you'll see that the taxes go up by quite a bit. I mean, they could be going up by multiples of hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the property type and how long ago the property was last audited. Number eight is going to be about renovations. So when you are looking at the interior renovations, a few questions you want to ask yourself are how many units were renovated by the current owner? So what percent of the units were renovated by the current owner? And then you want to know what were the unit upgrades? So what did they actually do to these units? And then you want to know if you will be replicating what they did or if you're doing less or doing more. 
And so that will help you determine a cost. And then for the rental premium that comes from those interior innovations, the two questions you want to ask yourself are, what period of time were those units renovated? So they mentioned 20 units renovated in two months is different than 20 units renovated over two years. The rental premiums of the two months are going to be way more accurate than the rental premiums of a two-year renovation timeline. And of course, you want to know what premium was actually achieved based off of those interior renovations. And then to determine your exterior costs, really the only way to do that is to visit the property in person, preferably with your property management company or the general contractor. So again, for the interior, essentially you just need to figure out what the current owner did to the property, if anything. If it did do something, are you replicating it or are you going to do something else? And then if you are going to replicate it, what was the timeline of those renovations and what was the rental premium? And the ideas of figure out how much to spend on interior renovations as well as to get an idea of that rental premium. The last two are pretty quick. Tip number eight is going to be about the operating account fund. So make sure you have an upfront reserves that is equal to one to five percent of the purchase price. And that's going to be to cover unexpected issues that come up during the first couple of years before you can create your reserves from the ongoing cash flow. So you need to have those reserves up front to cover things so you don't have to do a capital call if, God forbid, something massive comes up. And then lastly, it's about the disposition assumptions. So when you're entering a deal, you're going to have a sales assumption. So the most important sales assumption is going to be what will be the cap rate. So we've got your budget, you know what the NOI will likely be at sale, and the other factor you need to determine the value of the property is going to be the cap rate. So what is the exit cap rate? There are a lot of different strategies for determining and setting an exit cap rate assumption, but what we do is we add 20 to 50 basis points. So that's 0.2 to 0.5%. We add that to the in-place cap rate. So if the current NOI at a property is... 100 grand and we're buying the property for 2 million bucks, then the in-place purchase cap rate is going to be 5%. So we would assume that when we sell the property, the cap rate will be 5.2 to 5.5%. And then that's what we will input into our cash flow calculator, which will determine the amount of money we will make at sale. And obviously that's being distributed to our investors. So that impacts the return projections as well. So those are the 10 tips for underwriting. Again, I'm going to spend an entire series focused on the underwriting process in great detail, and you'll definitely receive some sort of free document to help you get started with your cash flow calculator. But continuing on with that 130-10-1 process, for every 30 deals that meet your investment criteria, expect about 10. So one-third of those will actually end up meeting your investment criteria and warrant an offer. Now, Once you submit an offer, and if it's accepted, then you move into what's called the due diligence phase. This is going to be step three of the financial analysis process, the last step before closing. So this is the phase between the contract and the closing. The purpose of due diligence is to confirm all those assumptions that you made during the underwriting process so that you can determine if the deal still meets your investment goals. So during this period, you have the property inspected, Your property management company is going to to do a bunch of audits on the current operations. You're going to have an appraisal. People are going to come and survey the property. And you're going to have all of these different inspections, audits, appraisals, and surveys. will generate reports that you will then review. And based off of the results on those reports, you'll go back to your financial model and update or confirm the input assumptions. 
which will give you a much more accurate five-year to seven-year, whatever your hold period is, projections. And based off of that, you can, at that point, ask yourself, okay, after due diligence, I've got all these documents, all these inspections, I know to a high degree of accuracy what the cash flow will be for five, seven, whatever your hold period is. Does this deal still make sense? And again, I'm going to dedicate an entire series to going over what those reports are, what they mean, how much they cost, how to analyze them, things like that. But for now, just know that you're going to get all those things. And then for every 10 deals that you submit an offer on, expect that you will only close on one. So that means that of those 10 deals that you submit offers on, one of those will have the offer accepted and will pass that due diligence intensive analysis phase and be closed on. So those are the three steps. The last thing I want to talk about is kind of a general timeline so you know what to expect for each of these steps. So for setting your investment criteria, it could take anywhere from a few months to a few years. Because as you know, I think we're on series number nine right now. So we've done eight other series on a apartment syndication. And so before you even get to the point where you can set your investment criteria, you need to go through all those eight steps first. So you need to get educated, you need to get experience, you need to set your goals, you need to build your brand, you need to get a team, you need to get passive investors. So depending on where you're at, you might be able to do all of that in a few months. Unlikely, but you might be able to do it in a few months. More than likely, it'll take you six months to a year. But if you don't have any experience, then you might need to spend the next 12 months getting experience before you even start the syndication process and get to the point where you can make your investment criteria. That's why I said a few months to a few years, depending on where you're currently at. For the underwriting, underwriting a deal could take anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Typically, for on-market deals at least, when they're listed for sale, the call to offers date usually isn't for about a month. So for on-market deals, it could be submitting an offer within a few weeks or up to a month, maybe two months. For off-market deals, it could be a year before you negotiate an offer with the owner. And then the due diligence phase, again, is negotiable, but generally it's going to be 60 to 90 days. So Contract to close is going to be 60 to 90 days. So that concludes this two-part series about how to qualify a deal. Again, we didn't go into extreme detail, just did an overview just to introduce you to the concepts of underwriting and due diligence, which was in this episode. And in the last episode, we did go into detail on how to set your investment criteria because that's what you actually need in order to start looking at deals. So in this episode, again, we went over the 10 underwriting tips and described underwriting a little bit. And we also gave you an overview of the due diligence, which is step three. And then we gave you an overall timeline for this financial analysis. So that concludes this episode. To listen to part one and the other syndication school series about the how-tos of a part of syndication. And to download your free documents, visit syndicationschool.com. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you tomorrow on Follow Along Friday. Best ever listeners, best ever conference. That's where you want to be, February 22nd and 23rd in Denver, Colorado. Put in the code TAKE5, T-A-K-E, and the number 5 to get an extra 5% off. Ticket prices go up weekly, so buy it today, besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference at the website all about the speakers. You can read about them and what you will experience when you're there. Besteverconference.com. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart. 
get the word out about their cause and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out.